Spy Cops Info Podcast, looking at the undercover secret political police that infiltrated Britain's activist movements. Episode 4, The Undercover Policing Inquiry, Tranche 1, Phase 2. Hello and welcome to the Spy Cops Info Podcast, Episode 4. I'm Penny. I'm Chris. Welcome. And and today we're going to talk to you about um, what's been going on with the Undercover Policing Inquiry. We're going to talk, uh, we're going to have a few um, more in-depth interviews sort of summarising what's gone on, talking about all the events and things with our roving reporter, Tom, who's been in London this week. Um, But before we do that, we're going to give you sort of a bit of an overview of some of the highlights about what's happened in the inquiry so far. Yeah, I mean, I wish we had time for an overview, but really it's just a brief mention of a few of the, the things. Um, so we've had an, a number of civilian witnesses who have been given evidence to the inquiry since it started on Wednesday, 21st of April. Uh, they've included Madeleine, um, who is the first woman who's given evidence who had a relationship uh, with an undercover. She, talk about the, she t- talked about the betrayal that she felt, not just to her personally, but to her, her comrades as well. And then we had Diane Langford speaking as well, who was involved with a variety of groups, including the Women's Liberation Front. Um, She spoke about how a friend of hers recognised the undercover from his real life, so to speak, and and challenged him. And then he was was said to have threatened her. And threatened her family as well, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he denied this, but this is, again, the recollections that seem quite clear for people. So then we have Dave Morris, who's part of the Anarchy Collective, who was part of the Anarchy Collective based in London in a sort of a house commune and there were kids present. He doesn't remember the specific undercover officer. However, he does. He did note that they sort of reported on families and things, which again felt like a big intrusion. Yeah, then we had uh, uh, Dr Norman Temple giving evidence. Um, he was a member of the Irish National Liberation Solidarity Front which just for future reference, that will come up a few times in this show. And it's often referred to as the INLSF. So if you hear that, just because it doesn't always roll off the tongue, um, just keep an eye out for that one. Um, and after that, we also heard from um, one of the uh, undercover police officers, David Robertson, also known as HN45. He infiltrated the Marxist-Leninist and Britain-Vietnam Solidarity Front. Um, he was the officer who um, was alleged to have had the dispute with Ethel who was the woman who recognised um, the undercover police officer and called him out. And also the, Alex Sloan, he was the infiltrator to Norman Temple's group. I think they said also that they he had a nickname, was that right? No, he, it wasn't his nickname. He let go about a nickname of another undercover, um, Mike Ferguson, who we'll hear about later as well. And what was the nickname? Oh, Gimli, as in one of the dwarves from Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit. There you go. Um, Also, just to be of note, that Mitting um, thanked the undercover officers for their honesty and their testimony that day. It seemed like kind of like prejudging the the subject matter somewhat. And then um, talking, uh, then we had Piers Corbyn, uh, who, as you probably know him, as a climate change denier and a um, lockdown sceptic. But um, uh, before that, he was a member of the International Marxist Group and a squatting activist. 
Okay, and then we also had Ernest Rodker. He was part of the Stop the 70 tour, um, an anti-apartheid campaign, and sort of a community organizer over over a long, a long, long time. He's an elderly gentleman now, and he's in ill health, so a statement was read by his son, quite moving in places. Um, he spoke specifically about a, a miscarriage of justice that is now to be investigated as a result of this. Um, and he was he's noted also because he's sort of up there for how many undercovers have spied on him. So he has six undercovers who have spied on him um, from the late 1960s to the 2000s. And he was also a founding member member of the CND. Yeah, then we had an, another um, defendant in that case, for Professor Jonathan Rosenhead of Ernest Rodgers' Stop the 70 um, tour um, direct action known as yeah the, the Star and Garter case. Um, he he spoke similarly on you know obviously he mentioned the, a lot of the about anti-apartheid stuff as well and then we also had also part of that um, miscarriage of justice or the, the to be investigated to see if it is one um, which it sounds likely that it is is Christabel Gurney um, with an OBE to her name um, she's an anti-apartheid campaigner also arrested with um, with the two gentlemen that we spoke about just now. Um, it was Michael Scott, HN298, who was also part of the group that was arrested with them, who um, sat in on some of the legal proceedings and things, which is obviously, um, I want to say dodgy, but obviously very problematic from a legal point of view for an undercover police officer to sit in on legal hearings like that. Yeah, that's right. And he, he also went along with the the police's story that whereabouts they were in the car park or whether they're on the road. So he was, you know, complicit in lying as well because his evidence was could have like cleared them because, the, you know, the offence they got charged with they shouldn't have been. There you go. Um, lastly, we have Peter Hain, who was a, a well-known anti-apartheid activist. And like Ernest Rodker, he's also had six undercover officers spy on him throughout over several decades. They spied on him while he was an MP. Um, he was um, very assertive when he gave testimony. Um, and um, yeah, he's, uh, yeah, he, he gave testimony on, on what he'd experienced. Yeah. Okay, then lastly, we're going to speak about... Um, uh, yeah, Kate Wilson's investigatory powers tribunal, and you'll hear, hear Kate speaking in a bit. And she actually, I think she uses the acronym IPT. So just to let you know, it was it was a ten year long court case which finally went to trial um, at this secret court. Um, she's probably a better person to tell you all the details of it. But it it rolled around human rights abuses and and her relationship with Mark Kennedy and Mark Kennedy's intrusion, as well as actually other undercovers into all aspects of her private life. Mm-hmm. And I think we, we did mention, we, we will hopefully speak to her about that if she's up for it um, at some point as well. So now we're going to go in and listen to an interview a bit more in depth about a summary of the first few days of the undercover policing inquiry. Um, just to give you a bit of a heads up, um, I think the sound was all right, not our best. Um, it was recorded outside in um, adherence to COVID guidelines, so that's good. However, it doesn't make for the best listening all the time, but we've done our best to tidy it up. So bear with us because there's some really um, important and interesting conversations there to help understand the processes that are going on during this undercover policing inquiry. Also, just um, as these people who we interview are very knowledgeable about it, there's just a few terms that we want to define for those of us who maybe. Um, aren't as knowledgeable about all aspects of it inside out. Um, so one of the things they mention is powerbase.info. So Powerbase, it's an online guide to networks of power, lobbying, and decept- deceptive PR. So it's definitely worth checking out in your spare time. 
Yeah, and there's a specific undercover research group portal where you can see all our profiles of both individual undercovers, as much as we know about them, and also different departments and aspects of the policing units. So, um, yeah, um, this conversation starts off with my colleague uh, Donald talking, going straight um, into, uh, I guess, more nerdy aspects, because he's talking about files and the rooms of the within special branch that we kept in. Um, and just to, just to give a bit of context, the registry file system which he's talking about, these are the individual and group files that the special branch kept on. I mean, the impression we've got from the the small amount of information we have on these files that pretty much if you were or are uh, a left-wing activist um, in the UK, you will have a file open on you, uh, pretty much. I guess at some point they close some of them, but literally there's how many tens of thousands of these, on these files, not just of people who are organisers, but literally if you're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you went to a meeting or even to the pub, you know, you might find that you have a registry file open on you. Um, and one, yeah, one thing about the undercover policing inquiry, because it's only about specific undercover intelligence, we don't get to see these files because these files not only include include covert intelligence but i guess open source and other materials well we obviously we don't know what because we're not allowed to see them but they have all as all aspects of the police's information on us as activists okay so here we go welcome to the spike ops info podcast uh episode four the undercover policing inquiry tries one phase two right so i'm here with evelyn lamarsh from the undercover research group Donald O'Driscoll. Also from the Undercover Research Group. And Carolyn Wilson, who's a core participant. And part of campaign proposal of surveillance. Yeah, I am indeed. I think we all are. <laughs> yeah, I think we all are. Um, so, like, we've just been, we've just had two days of the inquiry, and we've, and the Investigative Powers Tribunal thing has just finished. Actually, the Investigative Powers Tribunal, we'll do in a different episode. So, um, I think we should just talk about what's happened in the last uh, two days of the, well, last, I guess it's been five days of inquiry so far. Um, some sort of reaction to that. Uh, we've had like two days of um, hearings now. The first day was activists, Diane Langford and um, Norman Temple. And then today we had two undercover cops, HN45 and HN347. Uh, so I think we'll just talk about um, that in reverse order. We'll talk about H- HN347 first, because that was the one we just came out of. What were your impressions of page 347 as compared to what we already knew about and which you can read on the power base? It didn't add a lot. It just reminds you of how good undercover officers are at forgetting things when they don't want to remember it. Uh, they do remember details, but they forget a lot, which you think if they remember the detail, they should have not forgotten about the rest. Um, and they... I don't know, the morning was different from the afternoon because in the morning, what was the name of the inquiry? The we, had, we had Kate Wilkinson on behalf of the inquiry yeah. this morning questioning HN45. She's got quite a different style to David Barr, hasn't she? Yeah, and I, th- I think I th- definitely people that watched the hearings in November thought that in some ways she did a better job of digging down and actually asking the questions needed to be asked. And what's become apparent with both all of our witnesses so far is that sometimes they've not really understood the, the question and answered something completely different to what's been asked of them. 
Um, but yeah, as, as Evelyn said, there was a lot of situations today where the officers pretended they didn't remember anything and then suddenly did remember some key details. And it was really unclear what had sparked this new memory in them, you know, in, the, in, the, in those 10 minutes. Um, yeah, and also I think Kate Wilkinson was better at probing, not, you know, very effective, but she would, if someone did not understand the question or pretended not to understand the question, she would ask it in a different way and then try it again in a different way. Well, David Barr was still like he was last time, like he's just has, he just has this list of questions in front of him. And what he usually was really rattling off the questions, not even listen to the answer. He was slightly better at that now. But still, you know, they give, they, they, they've been given too much leeway to not remember things. In terms of what they do say, though, um, how different is the impression that 347 gave this afternoon to what people had seen from just reading the information about him or previously what people might have seen on the power base? I think the difference is that there's much more detailed stuff that we have found out, stuff that you can read in the witness statement, stuff that you can read if you go through the reports. There's so much more detail there and you know that they have read those reports as well. So they've had a chance to sort of immerse themselves in in those days again. And they just they just pretend to not remember anything and also like uh, I think it was this afternoon, um, age three for seven was member of a group of about, you know, like important meetings, 17 people there, uh, loads of voting going on on essential people about, you know, pushing people out of, the, expelling people out of groups. And he just claimed that he never voted. He didn't vote at, at meetings like that and he never voted. And I'm thinking, the procedures of those parties and groups were very much like, okay, who's in favour of this, who's not? And, I mean, and then he said, yeah, I just, he was asked, how do you not vote? And he said, I just didn't do it. Mm. It's like unbelievable, really. And he was able to remember that despite remembering yeah. very little else. But he was also full of himself in the sense that you know, special branch officers are, uh, you know, you know, well educated or something similar, diligent. And they, they, they put a lot of thought and consideration into things before they made decisions. Well, at the same chance, they just did what they were told. They did it what they were told, but yeah, they did what they were told, but also it was appreciated if they had initiative. So they decided for themselves which groups were important to to infiltrate. And on the other hand, they did what they were told. But know? on the other hand, they didn't show any initiative when they realised the group they'd been sent to infiltrate wasn't actually worth infiltrating. And there was no necessary reason for doing so because, as he said himself, well, that, that group would have died a death anyway. And so at the point when he realised that group really wasn't worth infiltrating, why did he take the initiative and go back to the senior manager and say, hey, why don't you put me somewhere else now? You know, cover is established, I could move on to that group instead. That's much more worth, you know, spying on. But he didn't show that much initiative, but he was very boastful about how much initiative these officers showed. So something doesn't match up there. And also, I think he ended with saying that, in hindsight, it was a complete waste of time. Yeah, in the first phase is where they go very proud of the fact that they didn't go near the groups that were actually breaking the law and said, oh, I wouldn't go I wouldn't go near the anarchists because you know they were throwing stuff and it's like 
the whole point is you were sent in to deal with public order. Why are you feeling smug that you stayed with like the groups that marched from A to B and thought that was the appropriate way? It doesn't make sense. But I think one of the clear things coming out of the material now is all the MI5 stuff, MI5 and blacklisting and working out who to because it's all about that state paranoia of you know reds under the beds. Um, the whole thing about public order keeps coming up as a justification but it's so clear on the ground how little it actually is relevant and they're, they're resorted to using tech explanations such as well we eliminated that group from our things and it goes what you eliminated a group that had political differences to your masters and you thought the whole reason for going into them is that they taught differently it's like how is that not orwellian I mean, I was going to say, one interesting thing that has been mentioned, I think, last week in the opening statements um, is that some of the documents that are going to end up being published as part of this phase, I'm not sure if they've been published yet, includes um, fairly regular sort of reports about what is subversion that I think have been originated by the security services and sent out to the police force. And that's going to be really interesting reading when that's published on the Inquiry website. Um, same as the SDS annual reports are actually really interesting reading because they give you a sort of overview of how the SDS sought to justify itself every year um, and they are available right now so that's something people can go and look at already I, mean, I think what's interesting about um, the INLSF um, as we should record, well. refer to them as um, <laughs> is that you know they uh, they produced a, a, news, a newsletter their, their main thing was the paper right? the, Irish, they were, the Irish Liberation Press yeah and the Irish Liberation thing for them it was a massive massive that's thing that's all they did them. right um, that's all they did, and they got they got a, a specialist and a cover officer into their group. And really, what they were doing was produ- producing a newspaper which had a particular s- sort of rhetoric in it. Which we had the really interesting thing of, of David Barr quoting at length um, yesterday. <laughs> the rant from the paper. The rant from the paper, and like by the you know by the end, I was expecting him to check some you know. I, I, this is where I think the questioning is just utterly irrelevant and missing it. Like, it's not the paper that's important. It's where they were selling it. They're in the Irish pubs in Kilburn. They're going to Coventry. They're going to Birmingham. They're going to Dublin and Belfast. It, to dance halls. That's what I found most interesting out of all the details today. The time place to find people. They were going out, meeting people, making contacts in the Irish emigrant community around the country, trying... And, you know, you got a copper in the middle of that trying to spot stuff. Now, that wasn't in the reports. Now, if I, you know, I'm not saying I could ever run the security service, but if I was doing <laughs> an intelligence gathering operation, that's what I would be asking. And it's like, where is that in the reports? What is so much stuff like, you know, you know I'm Irish, I understand this, the stuff around that. And it's like, there's so much there missing. It's so obvious. You know, it's like, you're out gathering intelligence. The stuff in the meetings, fairly irrelevant. What about everything else? What all the other stuff you had access to? Sorry, I mean, there's definitely, there was a line of questioning that really, like uh, when, when HN uh, 347 started talking about like going around the country, going up the M1, going to these places, staying out till five in the morning. Like there, there's, there's, a, there's things happening there. There's no interest from the inquiry about. So, so, so the things at five in the morning, you mentioned the dance halls, Caroline. It's like, yeah. 
that's they will be the illegal shabines that are going on where people are talking, where people's tongues becoming loose, where people are you know whispering in corners, and not even just knowing where those spaces are. That's prime intelligence gathering. We see got this myth that intelligence is some sort of esoteric, all-powerful stuff. It is literally day-to-day -day bits and pieces. Where do they live? Who do they talk to? That's what intelligence is about. I mean, essentially, they're, they're, I think there's a desire from the undercover policing inquiry to stay away from these kind of topics. But like so much of, of what this inquiry is like unearthed, particularly when we see like Box 500 and that, it's like the the, the real story is is outside of it. And the, the the more narrow we are about the undercover policing, we're not seeing the wider context. We're really losing out what the actual what's actually going on, right? So something that's come up, I think, hasn't got any attention, but might do in a future ranch is the R Squad or you see in the documents room 892894 so this is this unit within special branch who are on the separate floor they're up near the the bosses gathering all the information in from all the different spaces these are the people compiling the material but it's not just from the undercovers it's from the phone taps it's the technical surveillance it's the walking around so that's the big picture that's what's going to the bosses and even the police themselves have kind of raised this issue of going, you're only seeing the story at the bottom. What we're not seeing is that level of material because that's where you see everything in the circle, the actual intelligence that operation decisions are being based on. So there's that huge gap. And MI5 also play a gap in space. And although, although the non-state witnesses have all mentioned phone tapping because I think every activist in that era fully expected that to be happening as a matter of course the inquiry hasn't actually questioned any of the officers about their knowledge of that what happened to those records if they had access to those records or really talked about that topic at all and so it's it's hard then for the inquiry later on to be able to make a comparison between the information they gathered from the phone tapping the information they gathered from having the undercovers and therefore were the undercover deployments worthwhile necessary and so on you know, that, that's one of the things the police have always used to justify placing people so deep undercover in movements, is that's the only way they could get the information. But actually, if they were able to get it in other ways, why wasn't that happening? It's also the, myth of, sorry, it's also <laughs> the myth of the silo, you know, that you know, the SDS was totally contained. So you have to look at the information phone and realise there's silos of openings, or silos of doors for stuff to come in and out of. So what one of them today did say that... So one of them today did say that if he wanted information about a particular person or a group, he could just ask the managers or somebody from the back office and they would bring along that file for him to have a look at, you know, a couple of days later. That was sort of the impression we got. That was interesting. Um, one of the other things that I noticed is that um, the activists that are, are being questioned or, you know, uh, in the hearing very much about their political beliefs and their ideology and what they wanted to uh, to reach what it, so i'm i'm what you what you can see from that is that the inquiry is very much maybe trying to justify why they spied on these groups right as the policeman himself said today um, when the sds were collecting intelligence they were thinking about you know, what groups and what people were doing but also what they weren't doing and it's certainly the same with the inquiry. It's the questions that are being asked and the ones that they're not asking. And that's what I think it's important to keep track of. I think to answer Evelyn's point, it's like admitting an inquiry as a whole is convinced that, and they actually said this in the previous hearing, that they can get to the truth without us. 
you know, they believe that on the basis of the interviews and the documents, they 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 can find out the information. Us, us having witnesses from our side in there is, is icing on the cake. It explains to them what was going on on the ground, but they don't believe that we can answer about the deployments themselves, which is you know naturally nonsense because the day-to-day, how they actually got into the groups, how they came up and turned up and spoke to people and how far they were able to get in, you know, only we can answer that and the undercovers. So, for example, one of the things that came out um, or was missed today was within the Irish National Liberation Solidarity Front, I've been practising that, um, was in the cadre. And, you know, he didn't... The undercover didn't get into that in the cadre, but there wasn't an exploration about you know, or discussion about was that somewhere where you wanted to get? Because if you wanted to understand what the group was up to and its general true purpose, that's where you would go because they were clearly decision makers. You know, he kind of brushed over that, but there's an awful lot of that sort of missing. They just don't understand what the right questions are. It's just—it's so irritating. And so and what we've said to them repeatedly is that yeah. they can't ask the right questions of these groups because they've got no experience of these groups. Yeah. But I, mean, I think that, I mean, there's another element, isn't there, of that it's not just that they're... It's not that they, they don't know what they're doing in that sense, but that they know exactly what they're doing. Um, and for, for, partly because it's an establishment institution mm-hmm. and that what we're talking about, if they're actually going to start asking the real difficult questions, is about attacking, you know, one of the many lines of defence for the establishment, right? So... I think that there's there's an element of them, and also the other part of it of like the job. I mean, the difficultness of the job. Like, if they start like kind of you know asking those more difficult, they're giving themselves so much more of a job. Mm-hmm. That you know what what they're giving themselves is a manageable job. Um, it will not it will not get to the heart of anything. I think we all I think we all know right that it's it's going to be a whitewash. Yeah. Okay, great. So I hope you guys enjoyed and learned some stuff from that first uh, group interview. Next, we're going to move on to our next sort of summary of the week and things. So things a little bit further on. So in this interview, people are introduced, but just to make sure you know who's who's speaking, there's Tom Fowler, um, who you've heard before on this podcast, Kate Wilson from the PSOOL, Police Spies Out of Lives, uh, Carol and Ben, um, they're from COPS Campaign Against Police Surveillance. Um, so yeah, have a good listen to that. Thanks. Hi, we're back uh, from uh, the, the end of the, the, the week of evidence uh, hearings here at the Undercover Policing Inquiry. Uh, we've just finished uh, with a full day of, um, of Peter Hain giving evidence. Uh, it's quite a lot been said. It's quite a lot been covered. Um, <laughs> let's get your reactions. Start with Carolyn. Well, today we've heard all about the anti-apartheid movement. Um, we've had a lot of questioning of Peter Hain about the sort of tactics used by those different demonstrators. And we've also heard him saying repeatedly that he does not think it's acceptable for groups like those to be spied on in this way by such intrusive political policing units. Mm-hmm. Katia, what do you think of it today? Um, I thought it was really inspiring. Um, I, I followed a little bit the, uh, the tweeting of yesterday's hearing where it seems like the barrister for the inquiry basically approached it like she was prosecuting a terrorism mm-hmm. trial against anti-apartheid protesters, Professor Rosenthal, um, yeah, and, um, and, um, and yeah, I, I was quite put off by that and I was very inspired to see the way that Peter dealt with it. I think it's worth bearing in mind that obviously his subsequent career and the fact that he is now a member of the House of Lords means that he may have been treated 
with more respect by the inquiry than some of us can expect. But mm. personally, I've been dreading giving evidence, and I'm actually now quite looking forward to it because he's right. Like the, you know, we are on the right side of history. The protests that I was involved in back in the 90s are already being shown to be on the right side of history, and uh, and yeah, I think it's really important to remember that. Mm. your thoughts? Um, yeah, I mean, it was interesting to see the respect given to Lord Hayne, but it's also worth pointing out that, uh, you know, he was a member of parliament uh, and, a, and a minister, um, and I think leader of the House of Lords, at the point in which he was still being spied on. So House that Commons, respect yeah. by the police themselves didn't, uh, didn't extend as far as, uh, as, far as that. Um, Towards the end, I noted that he talked about how he had personally been spoken to by the head of MI5 who assured him that all the documents on him had been destroyed, and this was quite some time ago. It was 2000. And uh, here we are now, that these have been disclosed in, in evidence, proving that they weren't destroyed at all. Mm. Or if they were destroyed, copies were kept somewhere else. Yeah. You know, whichever yeah. way. I mean, it's, it's interesting, um, when, like, like you say, uh, Peter Haynes career obviously has given him all the tools to be able to interact with this inquiry in a way in which maybe a lot of other people haven't found as easy but um, he has I think he was particularly good the way he was as a, a witness because he he used the opportunity to make the political points that he wanted to make um, and I think that maybe some of the other um, witnesses no no shade on them or anything uh, didn't use that opportunity yeah. and maybe going forward we really encourage anybody else who's due to give evidence to the inquiry um, so, like, really think about ways in which they can get across the points they want to make, because you get the impression that the council of the inquiry is not going to be asking you the questions you want to hear. Well, instead, a lot of a huge, the huge basis of the focus is on what you were up to to made made you a legitimate target. Um, yeah, and what did you what did you do to provoke them? Right, exactly. But I think I think it's really important the point that that Peter was making about the how I mean it's really clear now the extent to which the police had lost the plot um, and they they really they did and they do mm. consider any kind of left-wing political protest to be what they call domestic extremism mm. back in the 70s they were calling it subversion um, and it is it's quite difficult to overcome that narrative, you know, the inquiry have seen the reports that these police officers were writing. And as Peter said, these were officers who were required to justify their own existence, their own salaries, their own jobs, by providing intelligence that said that the left were terrorists, that the left were dangerous, that there was a public order threat, that there was going to be violence. And so they lied. And, you know, that, the whole system was set up to create that. And we've seen it with the documents that I've seen from Mark Kennedy as well, that, that the, you know, the, if, if an undercover officer came back and said, well, no, they're quite a ni nice bunch, really. I don't think they're dangerous. They'd be out of a job. And also that they would... As they, with their whole department. As with their whole department, I, mean, I, I, yeah. I, I would point out that Doug Edwards did say that about the Independent Labour Party, and he was told, well, that's a handle to swing. You go back in there. <laughs> and, and, and stay the course. Um, one of the things which, which Peter Haynes said today was that um, the, the, the unit started off in the wrong place and continued in the wrong way. 
And I, I, I think that's, you know, one of the things that, I remember when we first started looking at all this stuff, we kind of thought the units had evolved a lot over time. What we're getting the impression is there's very little actually changed. That all the problems were there in the early uh, 70s were there in the 2000s. Yeah. Um, I think all they did was develop those tactics further. When they worked out what, what was effective, then they, they made more use of techniques that, you know, at some point were created. Yeah. Um, whether that's about what, how, they, how they did the cover story and their cover identity or how, how they infiltrated groups and the sort of approaches that would make people. Yeah, the, the how changed, but the why never changed. Mm -hmm. Well, the name changed as well. So you go through the whole alphabet soup of secret, uh, secret policing organisations. And whenever there's a kind of internal review that like draws doubt uh, and points criticism, they just change the name, juggle the letters around and re relaunch it again and nothing changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the points that um, Peter Hayne said, well, there's, there's no special branch anymore, but they haven't gone away. <laughs> you know, the, the, that is not like all these officers are then like just, you know, can give an early retirement and then we can do something completely different. They're moved. And I mean, that's going to be the case with the National Public Order Intelligence Unit, right? They're I mean, now the National Domestic Extremism Unit. Right, they exactly. They still exist. Yeah. Um, I think another thing that... I think they have the, a new name. Really? Already? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, something that Peter raised, which again we, we saw really clearly in the IPT last week, is the way that these operations went in with a, an extremely broad remit. Mm. They were sent into entire communities to spy on everyone on mm. the off chance that they might get some intelligence mm. that, about somebody who might actually be involved in crime. I mean, Peter gave the example of spying on the entire Muslim community. But actually, mm. given that the sorts of things we're talking about here are minor criminal damage, if you sent undercover officers into every pub in England, you would undoubtedly find people who committed minor acts of criminal damage on their way home pissed on a Friday night. Um, and but, but more importantly, you would find people who were criticising the government or slagging off the police. <laughs> and those would be the people who the police would be interested in spying on, not the drunk person that went out and smashed up the car. Mm. You know, yeah, or said that last week I went out and smashed up the car. We have seen the evidence to show that even when undercover officers have been chatting with someone who admits to major criminal damage, um, that's not that's not been investigated. That's not what they're interested in. It was it was very interesting. I thought that Peter brought that up as an example of you know what what would be unacceptable policing. But we know that some of these former spy cops, Bob Lambert for one, mm -hmm. went on after his career with the special demonstration squad and all the rest of it to launch the notorious prevent program mm. which is exactly about spying on muslim communities and other people that you know they suspect there's a risk that some people might turn to some kind of terrorist activity and who are but they've used it to justify spying on thousands of people and yep. opening files on thousands of people yeah i mean they're, they're the ones that put greenpeace and extinction rebellion on the mm. terrorist list mm. um and yeah i mean there, there is there is massive continuity across these units and the way that they're approaching I mean, progressive politics. One of the, one of the, the things was about, is about the treatment of the far right. Um, you, we had revealed today for the first time that there were undercover officers in the far right in the 1980s. Uh, apparently there's restriction orders on everything to do with them, so we won't be hearing at all about them. No, we don't you, know the quantity either, so at least one. Yeah, we know about more than one because there have been some bits of information leaked over the many years, but yeah, we don't have as much information as we have about the ones that infiltrated but, us. But it's certainly the case that the, um, the attitude of these units about the far right was very different. Um, we've had a lot of reference to, to what was referred to as the Battle of Lewisham, which 
Um, you know, th there was some disorder and violence on, the, on that event. There's no two ways about it. The police, though, were entirely interested in what the counter-protesters were doing. They had no infiltration in the far right of the National Front taking place, despite no. the fact that there was a huge rise in racist attacks at that time. We see this thing much later as well, when we have the rise of the EDL, uh, the English Defence League, which, you know, the, security, uh, the police say were, were not considered a, a domestic extremist group. And in fact, they encouraged Muslim groups to engage with them. <coughs> It seems like the attitudes of the police never really changed about the far right, albeit that maybe they decided there was some criminality that they couldn't ignore at some point over, over time. I mean, it's, it is now illegal for serving police officers to also join certain far right organisations. Mm. In fact, there was a guy in prison, I think, yesterday or today. No, it was today, four years for and four that, months. For that very crime. But in the 70s, I think it was actually quite commonplace for police officers to be fairly overt supporters mm. of the far right groups mm. that existed. Mm. Well, that's, no, that's no secret. You know, we, we know that the police are still institutionally racist now, and I think we've all seen the police acting in racist ways much more recently, but I think the problem is actually much worse in the 70s than it is now. Mm. It was much more acceptable um, mm. to be open about it. Mm. The, uh, the, one of the, well, the first authorisation to send Mark Kennedy in to spy on the Sumac Centre specifically targets anti-fascism. And it's interesting because they recognise in the authorisation that the anti, you know there are, have been some very famous anti-fascists, and I don't know if they actually mention the RAF. Um, and by that, I don't mean the Red Army faction; I mean the Royal Air Force in World War Two. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, the they they then go on to spy in depth on Nottingham anti-fascists, and it turns out that. It's, Throughout most of Mark Kennedy's operation, the, the, the intelligence on Nottingham anti-fascists says that there are two members and one of them is him. Um, <laughs> but they're still focusing on mm. the far left mm. and not on the far right. It's a similar thing goes on with uh, Hunt's apps in the, uh, in the authorities in which um, the violence around Hunt's abbing is raised, but in a, in a way that you would think that what you're talking about is Hunt's apps going out and attacking people. Um, which uh, is entirely the opposite thing. The, uh, they talk about uh, offences, um, violent offences, implying that it is... Violent offences related to Huntsabbing. Mm -hmm. When, uh, in fact, those offences were committed against Huntsabbing. Mm -hmm. So who do you spy on? Do you spy on the Terrier Men and the, and the, and the Hunts themselves who are committing these violent offences? No, you go and spy on the Huntsabbing. Yeah, I mean, it, this is something which um, is really comes through in the line of questioning. I mean, like to be fair to David Park QC, the questions he's asking are coming from elsewhere. Um, it's not his his line of questioning necessarily. It, it's been put to him by various sides. But I mean, one of the things that he did put to um, to Peter Hayne about, about, about the Lewisham was that the, the the National Front march was wasn't banned. It was a legal march. They'd worked with the police, whereas the counter protesters hadn't worked with the police, and they'd cause the problems um, and it's this kind of uh, this kind of framing of it all that like well the national we're the front, illegitimate ones right so the national front are a perfectly legitimate political party they're rising in popularity in the UK the third biggest party in the UK who the hell are these lefties to go and stop the democratic progress of fascism in Britain and <laughs> in that, I mean, we, we have heard all throughout this week, and particularly today, essentially a defence of apartheid South Africa. We've also heard a defence of the British far right at a time when racist attacks were enormously on the rise, when you know, people were genuinely scared for their life for good reason. People have been killed. Mm. You know, and the same with the hunt thing. People have been killed for taking part in hunt sabotage. Mm. 
Mm. We forget about that. I mean, th there is, a, 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 you may see on social media at the moment, there was a, uh, a hand stab that got very, very badly hurt. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, the, the, the photos are on social media, they are a bit disturbing. I warn you, if you, if you do, do go look for them, uh, you know, be warned. Yeah, so I mean, uh, once again, though I think today was very interesting in lots of ways, and there was some few, few bit tidbits of information, the majority of things that we talked about was about the history of radical protest in Britain. It wasn't about the history of undercover police. Yes. Um, the inquiry, which is supposedly there to look at the undercover cops, is actually spending its time looking at the undercover cops' targets. Mm. And I, that, that's what I think is really important to take away from Peter's, because he's evidently hugely proud of what he did. Mm. And I think we should all be hugely proud of what we did. And, um, and it's, it's difficult. It's difficult in the face of a narrative coming from the police that says that we are criminals mm. and that we are subversives mm. and that we are terrorists. Mm. And, and yeah, it, this is, you know, I mean, I've, I've heard it said before that the undercover police are fighting an ideological war and they're on the wrong side. Mm. They're on and the they wrong have, side of the They have no place. The police have no place mm. in getting involved in an ideological and a political mm. campaign in trying to undermine democratic processes in this society because it's really important to remember that protest is a democratic process. It's, it, democracy is not going to the polls once every four years and voting. And we have to I mean, let, keep let's, pushing that point. Let's not forget that the only reason we're allowed to go to the polls and, and, and vote is because of protest. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only reason we have things like the weekend is because of protest. That social progress in this country has only come through protest. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's a key part of, of democracy. Imagine Britain without these movements. And I mean, one, one of the, the things that always fascinates me is what kind of Britain would we live in if the undercover police hadn't been deployed when they were? Yes. Mm. Um, we look at the, social, the change in social attitudes that's happened in Britain since 1968 to now and how, how much society has lagged behind the social <coughs> attitudes of the majority of the population. And I think, I think a certain degree of that has to be laid at the door and the way in which undercover police were used to stunt radical movements um, you know I think it's it's so clear in terms of, of the apartheid uh, regime because you know arguably Britain's support for apartheid South Africa continued for another 20 years after Peter Haynes and the Stop the 70 tour you know by that point it was you know universally derided by most sides yet you know the British security services were still working hands in glove with yes. you know the most brutal terrorist <laughs> fascist racist regime in the world possibly one of the worst the world's ever seen you know that the, the, the they weren't like as much as this is talk, talked about in terms of subversion public order and criminality what they were actually fighting was ideas um and though they were i i would argue they were never successful in, in like extinguishing those ideas they blatantly were very successful in slowing their progress yep. And I think we should we should all remember that. I mean, Peter, on a number of occasions, mentioned Extinction Rebellion. He mentioned mm. Greenpeace, and you know, cli climate change is something that is coming for us all. Mm. And the undercover policing of the environmental movement mm. set back mm -hmm. the struggles on climate change by years, and mm. and they are going to have to live with that, and we are all going to have to live with that. And not just undercover policing, you know, you've got the overt policing and the mm. and changes in the law, which, and of course this weekend we have the Kill the Bill protests with the threat of uh, more police powers being uh, thrust upon us. So, uh, 
Yeah, at every stage that needs to be resisted. Otherwise, again, it's a slowing down of mm. what mm. change is inevitable. Mm. But uh, yeah, the state, the establishment, the conservatives all want to slow it down and hold on to what they've got. And I think it bears repeating, we said it earlier on in one of these conversations, but uh, these spy cops were also spying on political parties. We heard about how Peter was spied on right up through his involvement in the Labour Party, becoming an MP, and right up to being a cabinet minister and head of the House of Commons, leader of the House of Commons. Um, the only party, political party, that wasn't spied on was the Tory party. Um, as far as we know. <laughs> well, as far as we know. <laughs> the left of Tory party. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I think, the, I think the ideological bias is coming up again and again, and I think it's really important. Yeah, yeah absolutely. That, that is not the role of the And this, this, there is something you said earlier, I mean, obviously there's been a lot of bias in, in terms of the police and their attitude, um, but this inquiry as well, you said something like, oh, to be fair to David Barr, he's just asking a mishmash of questions from all these different sides. Mm. The inquiry get to choose which questions they ask and which questions absolutely. they don't ask. Yeah, yeah. And they could quite easily say to the police lawyers and the designated lawyers working for the former officers, you know, thanks for your questions, we'll consider them, but give them a lot less weight than they give up. I, mean, I know a lot of our questions aren't getting asked. Mm. And we're looking at, you know, these actual deployments, the effect these deployments had, what these officers did, the real experts are the people in the movements who were spied on. They're not the police lawyers. No. You know, so, we can, we're yeah. probably the only people who can help the inquiry actually interpret these documents and, and these reports. And if we don't get to see them, if we don't get to see our files, it's going to be very hard for the inquiry to ever reach the truth. We've said it's all the way through. And I, I, think, I think people, from the, from the IPT experience, I think it's really important to understand that the people raising the questions from the side of the police, certainly in our case, are not the officers involved. And we have a situation here where the Metropolitan Police as an institution has their legal representatives at the inquiry and many of the spy cops are not represented by that institution and have made it quite clear that they don't have much confidence in that institution. They have their own lawyers and the Metropolitan Police legal team um, are not the people who are running these units and often they don't know how to interpret the documents. I mean, we've seen in the IPT the the inability of the legal team to interpret the documents and the refusal of the officers involved to cooperate. So really, you know, it's it, it, it really is the case that the people who have the information and who can properly interpret the documents and understand them are the core participants who are involved in the movement at the time because the Metropolitan Police as an institution is defending themselves as an institution they're not interested in getting to the truth mm. i mean i think it, it 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 really bears repeating that you know a great number of the questions that were have been asked over this week they focused in on the same documents repeatedly um mm. generally they it seems like they've just keyword searched for anything which sounds a bit racy so violence anytime any violence is mentioned including when they're talking about non-violence <laughs> um, it's still been presented to, to the witness to say, well, is, is, this, is this a true characterization? Um, and were you trying to be violent? And I mean, like, to be honest, a lot of the questions were, were straight offensive, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you have to ask the question that, like, there, has to, there is something lacking in the morality and the decency of the people who put those questions forward and for those who think that it's perfectly acceptable to ask them. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be very interesting when we come to the issue of relationships had by mm. 
by undercover officers. We've touched on it a bit already, but um, yeah, because this idea that in some way there may be a justification for this completely collapses at mm. that point. There is simply no justification for inhumane and degrading treatment and yeah. um, the police have admitted that those relationships are inhumane and degrading treatment um, and I mean we've like as, as women deceived into these relationships we've come up against this a lot and I quite often get asked well you know what were you doing and I'm never sure whether to answer the question because on the one hand like Peter I am hugely proud of the things that I did and on the other hand I don't want to answer the question because I don't want to suggest that what I'm doing is of relevance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's victim blaming. Yeah. 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 It, you know, it is, it's the political policing equivalent of were you wearing a short yeah. skirt. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, absolutely. And I, but I, I, I fear that when we come to that stage, that we will get those unacceptable lines being put forward. Yeah. Um, kind of almost certainly. Um, Especially if Rebecca Hollister has anything to do with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, it's, it, it, I mean, I, I would say it's incredibly disappointing the way in which the, the inquiry is, is behaving, but that suggests that at some point I had hope in it. <laughs> I, I, think, I think we all, we all knew in advance that it was liable to be whitewashed. I, thought, I think we all thought they would pay a little bit more lip service to the feelings of those who were targeted rather than treating us like we're all on trial in some way. Um, yeah. Well, just another three years till we find out, eh? There's some rare optimism there. It'll only be three years. Um, I personally, I'm, I'm putting about five years, I reckon, before we start that part of the process. Okay, I'm thinking, yeah, the, the, the transit starts in 1993. You might go on to that in about 2024. Okay. That's my guess. Yeah. We can take bets from years later. Yeah, if anybody wants to join a sweepstake on uh, <laughs> when the inquiry will end, we might, we might do that. On that point about... Um, having no confidence in the inquiry. I mean, it's something that I say over and over again Mm. because it is incredibly frustrating. Mm. But I think it's important to say that, you know, we are are the people who are involved in this public inquiry. We've been banging away at it now since 2014. Mm. We were calling for the inquiry to happen in the first place. Um, And I sometimes worry that us that we we say that it's not important because you know there it's it's clearly you know the lines of questioning are tendentious the bias is evident and the treatment of core participants is upsetting and so we're quite vocal about that but at the same time I think it is hugely important the information that's coming out here and I don't want to give people who are listening the impression that you know the inquiry is just a whitewash I mean you have be aware of the bias but also like be aware of the, the, the very important truths that are coming out here and uh, and you know I'm quite proud of yeah, I mean, I, actually, I think that, that really bears underlining that. I mean, I think I, I'm probably as one of the most guilty for just, like, kind of saying how fucking awful the inquiry <laughs> is again and again, and people who watch these videos know that I keep saying that. But, you know, I have taken quite a lot out of my life to be here for every day of the inquiry. I, I haven't done that for no reason, you know. Mm. It, um, we are learning things from being here. Uh, we are drawing attention to the topic in a way in which we were finding incredibly difficult before an inquiry was launched. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I'm always reminded of the words of a chap who came over at, uh, from the Pat Finucane Centre before the inquiry was started, when we had that police and crime um, conference thing. And he said, well, the best thing that can come out of a public inquiry 
is another public inquiry. And the best thing that can come out of that public inquiry is another public inquiry. And, and after then, three, and and after three uh, public inquiries, you may get to a point where you're starting to get some information which is actually enough to start another public inquiry that might go somewhere. And I think we need... To, I mean, one of the things about... Because we, we keep talking about how long it's all going to take, how, like, oh, it's going to be years ahead, it's years ahead of... Uh, this isn't going to ever end. Yeah. This is never, ever, ever going yeah. to end. None of it's going to end. I mean, if it, if it does end, it's because climate change gets so out of control, we all just fucking burn. Yeah. <laughs> but, like, other than that, it's not going to end. And we, we shouldn't be, like, kind of thinking, oh, well, we really do with it being... It needs to be come to an end soon and hurry up with it, because... There is no ending. There is no. There is no final battle. You know. I mean, like, it's, it's, we've just got to keep going, and like, we'll, we'll keep finding things, and we'll, we'll, we'll keep complaining about things. But, but we're not going away. Yeah. This I mean, in, this inquiry ends with the MPO, MPIOU, but the spike ops didn't end with the MPIOU. They're out there now with a different mm. name. Well, I mean, will be actually, another. <laughs> actually, I mean, so members of the inquiry have said repeatedly over the last few days that it is will end the MPIOU. However, Tranche Five is supposedly about other undercover police units, not the Special Demonstration Squad or the National Public Order Intelligence Unit. So, you know, they're, 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 the inquiry is in direct conflict with its own terms of reference at the moment, mm -hmm. which is. As, apart from being shameful, it's also bloody unprofessional. I mean, I, I, on earth these people get paid so well to do a job badly. But, yeah, um, yeah like you say, you know, the, the, this inquiry is it's only a step. Um, and it's a step that, you know, we, we're going to exploit as much as we possibly can and push it as far as we possibly can, but it doesn't end there. However, this probably does need to end because we've been doing <laughs> yes. it for about nearly half an hour now. <laughs> is there anything else anybody wants to say before we wrap up? No. 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 Okay. Thanks for joining us. Um, Kill the bill. Kill the bill Kill on the Saturday. Bill. all over the country. Uh, there's one here in London, uh, which I think most of us will be going to. But like, uh, go to one in your local town. Uh, there's there's lists about the place. I'll try and put something in the comments. Other than that, we'll be back on Tuesday. I forget what's on on Tuesday. Actually, I haven't looked that far ahead. Um, but yeah, 10 a.m. Tuesday morning. We'll be. Tweeting. Insensitive questions from David Barr, probably. <laughs> yeah, I can pretty much guarantee there'll be insensitive questions from David Barr. But yeah, we'll see you all then. Um, check out the hashtag SpyCops. There'll be a new episode of the, the um, SpyCops Info podcast over the weekend, hopefully. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Great. So thanks for listening to that. Again, another gem of an interview done by Tom Fowler from our podcast. Um, so yeah, so that's it for this week. We're going to have more stuff coming to you very soon. To find out more about this topic, please visit spycops.info, where you can find all the old episodes, subscribe to our newsletter, join our Facebook group, and a lot more besides. We're grateful to the Campaign Opposing Police Surveillance for their support, which has allowed us to buy some microphones. We want to improve more. If you'd like to support the podcast, please get in touch.